All right, as you are turning to Romans 12, we're going to dismiss the children, uh, those ages four to nine. We have a special program for you called Kingdom Kids, and if you make your way to the back, to the foyer, uh, the teacher and helper will uh, take those students across to our CE Center, and a reminder to the parents that right after the service, we'd like you to go over there and pick those kids up. We don't want to take you away from conversations and connecting with other people, but we do need you to get your kids right away. Just tell somebody, hey, I'll be right back. I want to talk to you before you go, and get your kids right away after Kingdom Kids, and we're grateful for this uh, ministry that is now underway this, this fall. So Romans 12, hope you have your Bibles open there, or will do so. The page number of the Pew Bible is in the order of service. There's an outline on the back of the worship folder. Last Sunday, of course, was the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attacks. We call simply 9-11. If you're around back then, back in the fall of 2001, you may recall one particular outcome uh, from that horrible day. The word evil returned to our national vocabulary. See, in many parts of, of our culture, morality had been relativized, as in, you know, everyone has their own perspective on right and on what's wrong. What's true for you uh, may not be true for me, or things like, you know, that's fine for you to believe in, if that works for you. But then that whole idea of moral relativism gets shattered in the face of uh, experiencing some profound undeniable evil. Some things are just wrong. The word evil may go in and out of fashion, but it's always been right here in print in the Bible. And our passage, uh, one passage that talks about good and evil is the end of Romans 12. We've been in this section for the last couple of weeks. Paul's been giving uh, the Christians in the ancient city of Rome, a long list of short instructions, some having to do with relationships within the church. Uh, this week, we're talking about how believers relate to those outside the church, and not just, you know, non-believers in general, but specifically those who antagonize Christians, persecutors. He even uses the word enemies in here. How should Christians respond to the evil that is done against them? And because Paul's instructions don't unfold in a straight-line fashion, we're going to read this entire section again this morning. So Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 9 through 21. Please follow along. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Here's the big question this morning. In the war of good versus evil, how do we respond to the evil done against us? You see good and evil at the beginning of this passage and at the end, verse 9 and 21, good and evil, and evil as well in verse 17, and that gives us sort of three anchor points uh, for the outline, and there's a lot of pieces in the middle, so we're going to be moving quickly. So here's part one. Take a side. Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Two completely different responses to good and evil. Abhor. This is, uh, in the Greek, just like it is here in English, is a strong word. Hate, despise. Uh, Meanwhile, hold fast, also strong. This is the same word used in the Bible for the covenant of marriage. Holding fast. Uh, A man should hold fast to his wife. Cling, cleave. Uh, but, but notice how both of these flow out of the first part of verse 9. Let love be genuine. Real love is not ambivalent when it comes to good and evil. If you care about God, if you care about people, if you care about the world, God's creation, you will not be indifferent, apathetic. No, you will be passionate about some things. You, you hear words that blaspheme our holy God, you find them repulsive. You, when sin is celebrated and promoted, you are appalled. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. If you love God, there are some things you're going to hate. Like when you see people treated unjustly by an abusive husband, by an unethical landlord, by a tyrannical ruler, a ruthless gang, or a corrupt cop. Real love hates that kind of evil. And the Old Testament prophets would would call that out when they saw it. I could uh, refer you to a couple of places, but I'll read just one. Micah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The prophet says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, do you hear how they got that completely wrong? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. See, society is a mess when people, especially those in positions of power, hate what is good and love what is evil. That's not who we ought to be. So let's not be simplistic and say, well, Christians don't hate, Christians just love right? Uh, No, it's because we love God, because we love people, because we love God's creation, we hate what is evil. We are all the more committed to what is good, holding fast to what is right. But I hope I was clear, and I think this is what people usually mean when they say, well, Christians don't hate, they love. We, We do not hate people. We can't get that from this passage. In fact, you look at the passage, the wording even of verse 10 here 
it refers to abhor what is evil, not who is evil, right? Uh, hold fast to what is good. Second, I mean, just you go by the rest of the passage that we're going to look at today, no other instruction on how a Christian is to respond to people who do evil could be described as a hateful response. That's not what we're called to do. Hate evil people. No, that's not, not what it says. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So, are we clear? Real love, love for God, love for people, Christian love hates evil for what it denies about God, for what it does to people. Real love holds fast to what is good. So, we got to get this clear on the outside. We live in a world of good and evil. You got to take a side. I know, yes, there's a lot of all the gray areas, but if you, you want to talk about the gray, that's a different discussion. There are things that you understand, and sometimes very specific things, talked about 9-11, make clear, oh, wait a minute, yes, there is such a thing as evil. There are things, there is such a thing as good. And you got to take a side. You can't be neutral when it comes to good and evil. There's no Switzerland in the battle of good and evil, right? We're you got to plant your flag. Take a side. This is what I am committed to. This is what I stand for. And that fiercely passionate response to both good and evil makes Christianity absolutely revolutionary. Next step, when it comes to our response to people who do evil against us. So here we go. Next part. Launch a counter-offensive Repay no one evil for evil. And then the parallel statement is verse 17 and 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Also, never avenge yourselves. And we're going to take those two uh, together for the moment. Now, I would imagine you're like me. You've been encouraged by the counteroffensive in the Ukraine after months of fighting, Russians, Russian invaders advancing. Finally, it seems like the tide has turned. We hope so. Uh, what would it look like for Christians to mount a counter-offensive against those who do evil against us? Well, we're, we're not just talking about good and evil out there in the culture, Washington, Hollywood, there's plenty. Uh, this is, we're talking about right now, personal. This is good and evil, evil in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school district. Uh, just the scenario we're talking about is where you, as a Christian, are a victim of injustice or perhaps even persecution. That word is in verse 14. We'll come to that. Uh, you are perhaps the victim of an insult or intimidation or, on extreme cases, even violence. Maybe that's not anybody here, but that it happens in our world. We understand that. So, Christians, we have to be uh, we have to know what we are to do in those situations. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. And the parallel, verse 19, never avenge yourselves. So repay, avenge, again, similar. But also notice the, another similarity between those two clauses, no one and never. Absolute statements, no, ex- no exceptions here. There is no one who insults you, whom you then get to turn around and insult. There is no one who slaps you, who, whom you get to slap back. There is never, never a time when you are stolen from that means you then get, get to steal back from them. Or there is never a time when you are threatened that you then get permission to threaten back. 
You're like, okay, but doesn't that mean mean we just ignore injustice? I mean, if we're supposed to hate evil, why does this sound like we're tolerating it? Uh, We brought this up before uh, recently as we went through the book of Acts in the Sunday school class. Paul, uh, the writer here, in his own experience as a missionary, he was often harassed, beaten, imprisoned unjustly, and he was clearly, you see, as it plays out his, in his own story, he was clearly willing to appeal to the governing authorities on the basis of Roman law, on the basis of his rights as a citizen, and so on. So what Paul is saying here, and, and putting that together with his own example, it doesn't mean that we have to just, well, accept every injustice. So, let me be specific here. So if you are bullied, tell your teacher. If your house has been vandalized, call the police. If you're fired for your faith, take your case to court. If you are shot at, I don't think this rules out shooting back in self-defense. But think very carefully with me. Shooting someone in order to stop them from killing you or someone in your family is completely different from, oh, well, if you kill my family, I'm killing yours. That's revenge, and that's what this is ruling out. We don't do that. Christians don't repay evil for evil. But then, here's where it gets crazy. More than, even more than just Paul saying, well, hey, don't do that. Don't do revenge. You should refrain from revenge in the war of good versus evil. We are to launch a counteroffensive of doing good instead of doing evil. Let's keep moving. So, launch a counteroffensive. Keep that in the, you know, that repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Keep that in mind. That's what we're not doing. What are we doing? We're going to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, blessing or cursing, uh, biblically speaking, in the most specific sense, is about words. Words that are spoken. A blessing uh, can be as simple as, not in the Bible, but just in your everyday life. It can be as simple as, hey, have a nice day. That's a kind of blessing, right? You, that's what you're wishing upon them. May you have a nice day. You wouldn't say that, but uh, have a nice day. A curse, well, those are usually a little more colorful. Um, anything that says, I hope you fail. I hope you fall on your face. I hope you die. I hope you rot in hell. That, that, you know, okay, we're getting into the cursing, which gets, of course, to the curse word, damn, damn, damn you, God damn you. Just like the implication in bless you is God bless you, the implication in damn you is God damn you. And in a situation where you are being attacked, not because you are doing wrong, but because you're doing right, not because you have forsaken Christ, but because you are faithful to Christ, how do you want to bring God into it? Paul says, bless and do not curse them. That comes from Jesus. Uh, Luke 6, 27 and 28, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Did you hear that? Bless them, pray for them. These are all, God bless you, not God damn you. 
pray for them. It's not just about saying nice words versus mean words, uh, clean language versus, you know, filthy language. It's about what you want God to do to them. If we didn't have Jesus' teaching here, repeated by Paul and also Peter in his letters, we, we wouldn't have any difficulty, any tension at all with the imprecatory psalms. If you don't know that term, that's the, the psalms that we read in the Old Testament where the writer seems to just call, God, just smite those people. They're, they're, they're attacking me. They're, they're evil. God, just bring down all your wrath on them. Uh, like, for example, Psalm 510. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now, I think there are ways to, to still appropriate those words as a faithful Christian, but, but understand, if we didn't have, the reason why we feel tension there is because we have Jesus telling us, uh, bless and do not curse. Without Jesus, we wouldn't have any problem saying, God damn them. And to be sure, we'll see this later in our passage in Romans 12, the judgment of God is still to be reckoned with. His condemnation, eternal damnation, is still to be reckoned with. But what should be our attitude? What did Jesus show us? What did Jesus say while he was being unjustly beaten mocked, and executed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That word forgive, when Jesus uses it, when you use it, whether that's forgive me or hoping that someone will ask for forgiveness, forgiveness carries with it the recognition that a wrong has been done. Not you know, hey, you know, sorry, you know, like, oops, like, uh, hey, no, no problem, no bad, no, like, no, for, forgive me, or we, there needs to be forgiveness here. It says there is a wrong that has been done, There's, there is evil that has taken place, and while justice demands condemnation, you are pleading for mercy. Forgive me, or you're pleading for mercy from God for them. God, Father, forgive them. See, if you know, if we believe in God, we believe in heaven, we believe in hell, in, in all of, both heaven and hell, in all of the reality, uh, the, the vividness of, the, of all that is glorious and all that is horrifying, if we believe in all of that, and we know the damnation that we deserve apart from God's mercy. We don't want hell for anyone. We don't want, we want God's mercy for everyone. So it should be, there might be those moments where God, don't damn them. Save them. Bless and do not curse. Next part launch a counter-offensive. We're not repaying anyone evil for evil. We're not avenging ourselves. This, instead, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That's verse 17, right there. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of 
all. So rather than doing evil in return to the one who's done evil to you, you should want to, to, to do good, not only in the sight of God, but in the sight of everyone, in the court of public opinion, so to speak. Now, we can easily think of many ways where the public opinion might not be right. Uh, shouldn't we care only what God thinks, not what people think? The point here is not that we sort of crowdsource the truth or, you know, that, that morality is decided by majority vote, not at all. Um, what this assumes is that while some people may do you evil, there will be many others, onlookers, who will be able to see the evil for what it is, and when they look back and forth between Christians and the enemies of Christ, they should be able to tell who the bad guys are. They should be able to see, like, they're doing evil. These people are doing good, right? Now, sometimes that gets confused. Last fall, a man uh, saw an article just yesterday. Last fall, a man named Jeremy Hansen saw Merriam-Webster's online dictionary had changed the definition of the word female to include, quote, having a gender identity that is opposite of male. Now, I don't know from the story, I don't know if Hansen claims to be a Christian, but this is what he posted online last fall. Quote, It is absolutely sickening that Merriam-Webster now tells blatant lies and promotes anti-science propaganda. There is no such thing as gender identity. The imbecile who wrote this entry should be hunted down and shot. Now, continuing in the article, according to prosecutors, Hansen also sent a message through the site's contact portal. It would be poetic justice to have someone storm your offices and shoot up the place, leaving none of you commies alive. Prosecutors said on October 8th, last fall, he followed up with threats to, quote, shoot up and bomb the Merriam-Webster's offices. Now, Jeremy Hansen might be right about the definition of female, but he was not right to make those threats. I, again, I don't know if he would claim to be a Christian. I'm not trying to uh, adjudicate him. I'm trying to talk about how we respond. His behavior was not honorable in the sight of all. So right now, he's not being persecuted for his opinion of gender. He is being prosecuted for his responding to evil with evil. 1 Peter 2, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among non-believers, honorable, same word as here in Romans 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. People should see your honorable behavior so that when Christ returns, when final judgment comes, they have to admit before God that you did what was right. You were on the side of good, not evil. Next, launch a counter-offensive. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all, all people. Now, if you uh, call into the office, make an appointment to, to meet with me, come sit down, and uh, we're talking, and you tell me 
that the reason why you're here, why you wanted to meet with me, why we got to talk is because you're going through some kind of interpersonal conflict. I am probably going to take you to this verse. So Romans 12, 18, put a little star by it, write it in the, somewhere else. Like, oh yeah, I, I, that's a verse that I know we're going to talk about. Because uh, this can apply to any conflict. Conflict with a sibling, a parent, a spouse, a fellow believer. So even though this verse is in the context of conflict with a non-Christian attacking you in some way, you can apply this to any relationship, any interpersonal conflict. Now, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you should, uh, in any conflict situation, you should want to make peace. Uh, I mean, we have the words of Jesus that, that come to mind, blessed are the peacemakers. Not like, yeah, you know, it's better if you can make peace. Like, no, this is, this is the good way. This is the path that I'm calling you on. This is a, a, a radical, a completely different way than the world goes. This is the way. Be peacemaker. So we, we do have to ask ourselves, and it's worth asking when we're like, oh, I've got this conflict, these can't get along, or we just can't work this out, like, okay, I, I follow Christ. Am I committed to making peace? Am I committed to that, to doing what I can? Now, but just like it, just like it takes two to tango, it takes at least two to have conflict. You can have more, but at least two. But what if you're, okay, but what if you're the only one who wants to make peace? What if the other person only wants to make war? That's where I love the, the practicality, the, the realism that's in this, if possible. It, it might not be able to happen. Maybe the other person is stubborn or there seems to be no way to compromise or find, find middle ground. But here's the thing, that does not give you, Christ follower, person committed to making peace, it does not give you a permission to keep fighting. It, it still stands. Do not repay evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, and here's good to remember an exchange that you probably had as a parent um, or a school teacher. Let's imagine a, a mom saying, what, you know, come, coming in to the, you know, there's like crash, noise, ah, mom comes in the room. Wait, what's going on here? Wait, what? He hit me. Question, why did you hit your brother? Answer, he hit me first. See, all been there. He hit me first. And that kindergartner already has a concept of justice. Isn't that amazing? A concept of justice. If he hits me, it's only fair that I hit him back. But what do you say? That's no excuse. Just because he hit you doesn't make it right for you to hit him back. Romans 12, you, you already, you, you understand this better. So here's the, the thing, grown up. Are you listening to yourself? I know they hated you first. I know they did evil to you first. I know they started it. But you need to be the one, if possible, to end it. I know they may have started it. You need to be the one to end it. So far as it depends on you. I can't remember who I heard say this, but I didn't come up with it. Uh, they were saying something like, in a, in a conflict, 
even if you are only responsible for 2% of the conflict, go to the other person, take 100% responsibility for that 2%. Now, I would also add, don't go saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for only like 2% of this problem. <laughs> it's not, I will not help. Not help. Just go like, you know what? Hey, I, I know we had that argument, that disagreement, that this, this issue, and uh, when I, let's say you're responding to evil, you, you've responded to evil with evil. Like when I said that, when, when I uh, called you um, whatever, or if I, when I uh, threw this back in y- your face, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Um, I, I, I know we're, we're, we're struggling with this issue, but I should not have handled it this way. I should not have spoken to you in that tone. I should not have uh, retaliated. Da, 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 da. Do, do you understand what you just did? You didn't, you didn't make excuses, even if they were the one who started it. Even if they, won, they did evil to you, you're saying, you know what? I responded to evil with evil. Again, you're not, this is in your head. I, I, I responded wrongly. I'm taking responsible for my evil. And when you take responsibility, 100% responsibility for what you did that was wrong, now that there's a chance that we can get somewhere. And let me add this to motivate you to do what you can. To, again, as far as it depends on you. In a, in a, you're in a war of good and evil, but the calling for us is to live at peace. That's what it says here. Let me, let me add this motivation. Are you able to, to or a way of framing the, what this verse is getting at, are you able to go to bed tonight knowing that there's nothing else you could have done to make things right between you and that person to, there's nothing else that I could have uh, owned, acknowledged, confessed, confessed, uh, taken responsibility for, um, made right. Nothing else I could have done to make things right, to make peace with that other person. Or to put it another way, could could you stand before God at the end or in this moment? Could you stand before God, not pointing the finger at the other person? Well, they. They started it. Could you stand before God with a clean conscience saying, God, uh, this is not about them. They, they will have to answer to you. As I stand before you, I believe I can say I did what I could. I, I did what, I, at least I did what I could do. Even if we haven't gotten to peace. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Christian, Christ follower, peacemaker, live at peace with all. It sounds risky, doesn't it? Wait, wait a minute. Won't that let them off the hook? If, if I don't make them pay, if I, don't, uh, if I own what my 2%, what about the 98%? What if they don't uh, apologize back? What if they don't ask for forgiveness back? It sounds unfair. Why, why would I try to make peace when I'm not the problem? I didn't start it. Well, that's why we need the next verse. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. They're not going to be off the hook. 
So it's not risky. It's not, they're not getting away with anything. It's not unfair. This is the next part. Launch a counteroffensive. Leave it to the wrath of God. That's how you can avoid repaying evil for evil. That's why you, can, you don't need to avenge yourselves. You're going to leave it in God's hands. You don't have to take justice in your own hands because perfect final justice is in God's hands. And, and hear this, you are in God's hands. See, it's not a throwaway word at the beginning of this sentence. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Beloved, per- persecuted Christian, suffering evil from enemies, you may be despised by the world, but you are beloved of God. And that should free you to trust Him to take care of you and make things right. You don't have to take it into your own hands. Never avenge yourselves, even if you have the opportunity. Never avenge yourself, even when revenge would be so sweet. Why? Why is it a problem to take justice in your own hands? Well, one reason, it's so easy to get it wrong, to overreact. Someone hits you, okay? Uh, Justice, taking justice in my own hands. Do you hit them back the same amount, or do you hit them back harder? You hit him back harder, right? He hit me, I'm going to hit him back harder. And on and on it escalates. At the, at the level of two toddlers or geopolitical superpowers. Escalation. You never reach justice. Okay, well, but we'll, I'll try. I mean, you know, if somebody hits me, I'm just going to say, well, I'm going to hit you back just the same amount, right? I'll just, I'll just give, give you what, exactly what you gave me. Um, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay, I'll give you exactly what it is. But here's, the, who gets to judge what is exactly fair? What's exactly even? How hard, now how hard did you hit? Or how much did that cost when you uh, took that or broke that? Or, and what, you know, what's the, how do we calculate the, the mental anguish and all that sort of stuff that goes on there? See, here, here's the thing. Did they judge that? You judge that? Who's, who's the judge? The only perfect, impartial, true, final justice comes from God. And, and, and that final justice is really important. See, for, for those who, um, you know, it's like, ah, I don't know about the Bible, don't know about the, this whole thing about God and heaven and hell and judgment day and a lot of things, you know, okay, to not like about that. I I can understand why you would recoil like, oh, we're going to be judged. But here's the thing. If God does not, if there is not a God who one day will bring about final judgment, then folks, we're living in a world without any hope of final justice. If that doesn't make sense to you, let me explain it this way. For all the Evils and atrocities of our world, whether that's a schoolyard bully or the Holocaust. If there is no judgment day, if there's no final justice, then all the, all the bad stuff that happens, you know what? I guess there's just some winners and some losers and might makes right and hey, if you can get away with it, why not? There's no final justice. There might be partial justice. There might be some justice that happens, but there's 
Folks, we all know there's a lot of stuff going on that goes unseen, that goes unprosecuted, that goes unnoticed, and there are victims, there are sufferers. Is there any hope for final justice? Yes, there is. It is in the hands of the God who knows, the God who sees, the God who doesn't forget, and the God that will bring every evil deed before the throne to be found guilty or to be found under the mercy of God through Christ. That's the reality. Final judgment. If you have been cheated, if you have been abused, if you have been defamed, your reputation, your family, career ruined by someone else, you may not be in a position to bring about justice. You may have lost something far worse than money. You may have lost your innocence. You may have lost your health. You may have lost a child. I don't know. People, people lose those things in this battle of good and evil. You may not be in a position to bring about justice, but they will have, the evil will have to answer to God one day. And sometimes that is, no, that should be ultimately our only hope. That should bring you comfort if evil has been done to you, that they will answer to God one day. But it also, this is important, it also teaches us to surrender our right to revenge. Leave it to God. Instead, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So here's, this is, again, we're launching a counteroffensive here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, something to drink, and so on. Now that coals, burning coals on his head, what? Uh, you, you'd notice, oh, okay, this is a quotation. Look up the cross-reference. It's from Proverbs 25, and it's like, okay, but it just says the same thing. I still don't understand. What the burning coals of fire? You understand that that is typically that, just that metaphor, that image of coals of fire, usually identified with judgment in Scripture, but then you're like, ah, but does that go against the thrust of the passage? I mean, should we want that? Yeah, do this so that they can have burning coals on their head. Surely we, we shouldn't be motivated by the thought of adding to their condemnation. Some think that maybe this says, well, we should show them kindness so that they will feel burning shame and then maybe either relent or even uh, seek the Lord. I, I think just reading carefully, you know, again, verse 20 really is in contrast with verse 19, 20, to the contrary, means this is, so verse 20 is about doing the opposite of avenging yourselves. You, you, you don't avenge yourselves because it's in God's hands. You don't avenge yourselves, but that doesn't mean you do nothing. You do this. This is your counteroffensive. Feeding the hungry, feeding your hungry enemy is how you leave justice in God's hands. It's not your motivation to add to their judgment. That, I mean, that would not be a genuine love, right? But I do think it will often be the effect of that love. The outcome of your kindness will be, yes, increasing condemnation. What you and I are being called to do is less is to simply to press into the contrast of doing good in response to evil. 
And that's how the section will conclude in the next verse. But before we go there, we got to deal with this. Like, wait a minute, why would I help the enemy? Why would I, why would I do something nice to them? Think about it. What, what do you call somebody who helps the enemy, aid, gives aid to the enemy? They're a traitor. And it feels like you're betraying your own cause, or maybe, again, in the context of persecution, am I, am I betraying the cause of Christ by helping the other side? And we are living in such a polarized society right now. If you say anything nice, acknowledge any truth or decency from the other side, uh, whether that's politically, culturally, like you're, you're labeled as a traitor. Oh, so you're not on, you're not on our side? Uh, a traitor to your side politically or in the culture war? And, and it leaves no place for kindness, no place for treating people like a human being created in the image of God. You, you, we, we demean, we treat them as less than human because they're not on our side. Now, here's the thing. You need to take a side. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. But you need to love the truth so much that we will not lie when it serves our political advantage. Or we love God's blessing so much, we will not curse our opponents, even though they may promote values that are completely contrary to the Word of God. We're not curse them. We will not lie, etc. We will not do violence back to those who do violence against us. And the fact that God is the final perfect judge and the ultimate outcome of the war of good versus evil is in his hands, folks, this frees us to be kind. It frees us to do good. This is just the other, again, the, the, the blessing that we talked about earlier of speaking blessing with our words. This is blessing in practical deeds and action. Cup of cold water. Food for the hungry who is your enemy. Oh, hey, let me, let me share this with you. Let me, you're not helping that. You're not a traitor in the sense you're not helping them further their cause. You're just loving them as a person, as a human being. We hate the evil, but we care enough about what is good. We care enough about God that we, because we love God, we love people and we love what is right. And folks, this is, he says, that's not, you think, well, wait a minute, if I'm helping them, won't that, won't that help? Well, it's helping them. That, that means they're going to win and we're going to lose. No. Doing good is how we win. This is the end. Win the battle. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I, I chose that specific, win the battle, not the war. We are, we are in a much larger war of good versus evil, but I think these verses really press into the very specific personal individual situations, the situational moments of combat, the battles that we are in and how we respond in those moments. What will be your response in that moment when evil comes at you? When they insult you, when they lie about you, when they strike you, what will be your response? How will you be victorious over evil in your life. And I would suggest that Paul's concern, his ultimate concern, is not 
uh, do not be overcome, when he says do not be overcome by evil, he's not saying hold up so that the persecutors and the enemies don't defeat you. He doesn't want you to be overcome, defeated, when their evil infects you and you turn around and are giving evil out. That's how you would be overcome by evil. See, they can't defeat you ultimately. If you're in Christ, I mean, Jesus says, what's the worst they can do? Kill you? All right. They can't, they can't take your soul. They can't take what we looked at recently, the, the inheritance that is imperishable, unspoiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, First Peter. They can't take your inheritance. They, they can take your life, but they, they can't really take your life. You will not be ultimately overcome by persecution, by violence. The way you could be, could be defeated is if you let their evil infect you so that you are not giving, returning, so that you become the ones who returns evil for evil. You've taken the wrong side. You've gone to the wrong side. It's not the side of Christ. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Yes, we are in a war. But if we fight just like they do, even if we might be able to justify our actions, well, they started it. They did this to me. I should be able to do that to them. Like you, can, you can justify it, but you will destroy your own soul. Jesus has called us to something radically different. Paul here, but Jesus. Uh, let me, I'm bringing this to a close, but I'm going to read a, a longer passage from Matthew from Jesus. And you'll hear all of this that has fed into what Paul has been teaching us. This is from the end of uh, Matthew 5, Jesus, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I've referred to this already earlier from the Gospel of Luke. But, but Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's justice, technically. You have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, uh, go with him two miles. Go the extra mile. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to just pause and, and clarify that. So that you may be sons of your Father. Not do this and you get to be in God's family. Do this so that you may be seen to resemble your Father. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That interpretation I just gave you is reflected in the next line. For or because he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Folks, if we want to be like God, we have to bless and not curse. 
how did he treat those who cursed him? Well, you can just look at the sunshine and rain. He's blessing those who curse him all the time. How has he treated those who cursed him? Ultimately, not just the sun, not just the rain, but we look at the cross. He took the curse upon himself. His own son took the curse on himself so that, the, that we might be blessed with forgiveness, with peace, with salvation, with life. Brothers and sisters, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's how we are a Christian. That's how we are like Christ. That's how we resemble our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, help us. You know how deep it goes, that instinct when we are hit to hit back. You know how right it feels. You know how easy it is to fall in with those who do evil. Some of whom may be on our side, so to speak. God, help us to take the side of those who do good, who hold fast to what is good, without flinching in our hatred from what, for what is evil. God, we need your help to do this. We need your help to, well, let's just say, Lord, we, we ask you to forgive us for where we have returned evil for evil. Forgive us. Thank you for giving us good when we did you evil. And help us, oh God, to both be discerning, to be devoted to what is right and good. And to extend your grace in every way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.